Hey, what's up, y'all? Alan Kenny, host of the Blatant Homerism podcast, part of Sooner Sports Radio and the V Sporto Network. Uh, it's become kind of a regular thing now with the uh, Final Four ahead of us and lots going on right now in the college basketball world. Once again, I uh, invite our good friend Matt Zimmick, editor of the student section, on to talk some uh, college hoops with us. Matt, what's up, man? Great coaching matchups. That's what's up. Goodness, uh, no, no doubt about that, man. I mean, you got some, you have some heavy, heavy hitters in this uh, final four. Yeah, you know, no, nobody, uh, nobody snuck through the cracks this time. You know, no John Brady of LSU from two thousand six. <laughs> you know, this is the big leagues, man. Yeah, big time, big time, man. Lots of great coaching matchups out there. And, you know, uh, actually, there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of movement on the coaching circuit as well with, uh, you know, Texas, uh, Tennessee, Alabama, everybody looking at new new hires. Wanted to just review some of the latest developments. Um, obviously, the uh, Longhorns cut ties with Rick Barnes after 17 seasons. Uh, you know, Barnes made the uh, NCAA tournament 16 times there, which I understand that he didn't always go as far as uh you know longhorn fans would like but that's a pretty pretty strong record uh not to say that they didn't maybe weren't ready for some fresh blood but barnes turns around and lands at tennessee which had just axed donnie tindall off of some uh you know ncaa issues that i i i can't i I, i'm kind of surprised caught the uh tennessee brass off guard because i think that these were somewhat well known even when tindall was hired so Sure. Um, I guess, you know, uh, this is a case where Tennessee's, uh, the the incompetence of the athletic department might have actually played in its favor, I think. Oh, no question. You know, there, there are plenty of jobs where a fan base, you know, want, might not think that a coach should be fired, but a fan base certainly hopes that a coach, for whatever reason, will leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and opening up the door for a better possibility. I mean, this was Missouri with Frank Haith a year ago, and people were hopeful that Missouri would find a big-time replacement. You know, Matt Painter mm-hmm. had flirted with that job uh, a few years earlier, but, but Haith got it. And so when Haith left, you know, Missouri fans had a right to be very hopeful about everything. But then the Kim Anderson hire just, you know, just made it, left everybody scratching their heads but Mm -hmm. the the larger point being that sometimes you know you want that coach uh to seek uh either a greener pasture or to make a lateral move someone else so that you know you can perhaps get a much better guy and with tennessee that certainly happened you know think about rick barnes i've been critical of him in recent years uh but you know when you when you look at the whole of his career i mean he's achieved Pretty well. I mean, he mm-hmm. he he would certainly, on a career level, he'd certainly rate as an above average coach. You know, he got some good things done at Providence, and then perhaps his best work really was at Clemson. Yeah. You know, taking that that program to the Sweet Sixteen, that epic double overtime uh, Midwest Regional semifinal against top seeded Minnesota in 1997. You know, he he he. Uh, it could be argued that he, more than Cliff Ellis, uh, elevated Clemson basketball to the point where that program, you know, really gained respect uh, from the rest of the ACC. You know, the, the, his his memorable confrontation with Dean Smith 
and how he didn't back down, you know, from an icon. You know, that that gained a lot of respect in Clemson. And so before he did make the Final Four with Texas in 2003, you know, his, his body of work at Clemson uh, is what really shines through in terms of his overall resume. So Tennessee is getting an accomplished coach. And, you know, while, while I think it was worth, you know, it was worth it for Texas to move on, partly because Barnes set the bar higher at that program. He was a victim of his own success to a very real extent. Uh, you know, Barnes, Barnes' resume is still, on an overall level, it's very solid. I mean, I mean, Texas needed to shoot for something higher, but, you know, the, the, the work Barnes did in laying a foundation in Austin, that has to be respected and it has to be part of the larger story of his career. Yeah, I mean, if you're telling me that I'm I'm trading Donnie Tindall for Rick Barnes, to me, I, I've been the same camp with you. I've I've poked fun a lot at Barnes. I I, I questioned his uh, coaching acumen plenty of times, but uh, to me, that's a no-brainer right there. And heck, I mean, Quanzo Martin or even even Bruce Pearl. I I still think Rick Barnes. You know, you've got a pretty solid uh, pretty solid coach there. You know, compared to those guys, even. I would take Pearl over Barnes, but obviously uh, Martin, uh, you know, doesn't begin to rise to, to yeah. Barnes's level. But yeah. but you know, a Pearl discussion, that's that's another discussion for another day, and you know, we'll see where Auburn is two years from now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now let's look um, there though, where uh, Rick Barnes just departed in Austin. News uh, out tonight that Texas is uh, sounds like they're closing in on Shaka Smart from VCU. Uh, this has been a pretty extended courtship. The uh, we're, we're taping this on a Wednesday night. The reports have uh, Steve Patterson, Texas's athletic director, flying out to Richmond to pick up uh, Smart tomorrow, bringing him back to Austin for a tour, and then they're hoping to introduce him as the uh, head coach on Friday. It, it's it's such an ex- a protracted though kind of dance between these two. That it, it just fe- it feels a little odd to me. You know, I I can't really get a feel for that. I mean, you know, it, Saka has stayed with Virginia Commonwealth longer than a number of people in the business mm-hmm. probably expected. You know, after 2011 and the run of the Final Four, you know, he already had become an in demand coach at, at uh, various, you know, high major programs. So, you know, his coaching star has been burning for a few years now. Uh, and so, you know, the notion that he would have this protracted uh, dance with Texas, you know, it, it is curious and, and it does lend some credence, I, I, I would imagine, to the notion that, you know, this might not be an airtight uh, situation, and there were certainly a lot of conflicting reports earlier today uh, about you know how far the negotiations actually had uh, progressed. So I mean, there's that little bit of smoke. Uh, but you know, when viewed from the standpoint of Shaka Smart uh, having stayed at VCU longer than a lot of people f- ever thought he would in the first place, I can see reticence on his part. If if in fact reticence exists, I can see him. Uh, you know, wanting to make sure that it's really right, and and therefore perhaps there's some there's some hesitation, which is you know uh, extending this courtship rather than leading to a swift uh, uh, conclusion of a deal. Yeah, no, and and that's a very good point. You know, I mean, in the past, you know, he's had uh, 
opportunities. I think, you know, schools like, uh, I believe it was Illinois and UCLA have come calling in the past for him. Uh, and so clearly he's been pretty choosy, and it's not like he's in a terrible situation in VCU, which is, as mid-majors go, actually a pretty well-respected program that's uh, in a uh, you know relatively uh, favorable spot, paying him decent money. So I mean, so all that all that certainly does make sense. It's interesting though. I mean, theoretically. Uh, you know, just based on all the talk right now, I mean, Alabama is going after Greg Marshall pretty hard. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised that uh, he's not the one that Texas is uh, maybe zeroed in on, or or maybe something happened there and they just decided to uh, to to uh, go a different route. I mean, Marshall doesn't have a reputation as an easy guy to work with. You know that that really is a surprise to me. I thought that Texas would have gone for Marshall first. And, and I mean, that's just based on the, the, the idea that Marshall is a better coach than Smart. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the thing about Smart to realize in terms of a comparison with Marshall is that, you know, Smart's uh, star, it's still burning brightly, as, as we can see. I mean, Texas wouldn't, wouldn't have coveted him if that, if that wasn't the case. But in the past few years, we've seen with, his, with Smart's BCU teams that, if you can deal with their full court pressure, if you can get the ball across half court and get into a in, into a half court set. Uh, you know your offense can function relatively well. You know if you protect the ball against a Shaka Smart VCU team, you know your chances are you're you're going to get a pretty decent shot and you can score at a relatively effective rate. So that that's going to be a big question uh, in the Big Twelve if you know, Smart does land at Texas. And with a Greg Marshall team, you don't really have that problem. Now, you know, we're saying this on the heels of Wichita State's defense getting absolutely eviscerated by Notre Dame. But, of course, we saw how well Notre Dame played against Kentucky's yes. defense yeah. uh, a couple of days later. So that should be taken in context. Marsh- generally, Greg Marshall coach teams are, are much better in terms of half-court defense uh, than Shaka Smart teams. So... You know, in terms of that point of comparison, I'm I'm very surprised that Texas uh, has decided to go with Smart, and it does suggest, uh, as you mentioned, you know, that perhaps Texas was scared off of Marshall at an early point. I mean, that's pure speculation, but you know, it does make you wonder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess Smart does have, bring a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm to. Uh, the program too and maybe that's what they feel like uh they need there given i, I mean I, I think they're going to try probably try to end up building a new basketball arena there and and whatnot so maybe smart is the guy to uh kind of get him going there but i'll also be interested to see how well he was able to recruit given uh i love watching that style of play i love the up and down i love the, watching the pressure defense but it's not exactly the kind of easy sell I think for uh, recruits that uh, that you'd expect. So that's another interesting thing I think to watch. Well, you know, I've been when, when you think of of a full court pressure defense, you know, you go, go through the examples uh, of pressure defenses that you know made a, a reasonable impression on college basketball in the past twenty years. Uh, one that comes immediately to mind is Arkansas with Nolan Richardson, mm-hmm. 40 Minutes of Hell. And, of course, his protege, Mike Anderson, you know, he mm-hmm. rose up the coaching ladder from UAB uh, uh, to Missouri, and then he went to Arkansas. And actually, it's at Arkansas where Anderson was, you know, expected to reach the next level. You know, he made the Elite Eight at Missouri, 
Mm-hmm. So, but but Arkansas is the place where you know he really wanted to be. He wanted to do what Nolan did, and he really hasn't come close. He he certainly hasn't reached the standard uh, he attained at Missouri. So you know that's been kind of a setback for you know a uh, ten player rotation. You know ninety four feet. You know total pressure defense. That mm-hmm. kind of approach. Uh, Kentucky pulled and, it off pretty so, well back in the nineties. <laughs> That's that I was just about to go there. That yeah. Rick Pitino, you know, yeah. would would probably be considered a foremost example of pressure defense, you know, working to a tee. But of course, you know, you have Rick Pitino yeah. doing that. So that <laughs> that probably is what you know led to that style being successful. You know, if if uh, Mangog Mathiang uh, makes that two footer, I mean, he was being grabbed, of course. But let's say that two footer falls in instead of rolling off the rim. We're talking about Rick Pitino with eight Final Fours today. Izzo has only six, and Pitino's getting all the attention that you know Izzo, you know, actually ha- has wound up getting. Mm-hmm. So you know, a coach who came this close—I'm holding my two fingers <laughs> one millimeter apart—a uh, coach who came this close to an eighth Final Four. Well, yeah, okay, he it, it figures that a, that that kind of coach would make a pressure defense uh, work. So with Shaka Smart, you know, do are, do we really think that he's going to be able to implement this style, which you know, not not most coaches you know try? Uh, is he going to be that successful in a league with Fred Hoiberg and Bill Self and Lon Kruger and Bob Huggins and Scott Drew? You know, that that is pretty imposing stuff. And coming from VCU. I mean, I know that the Rams, you know, moved up from the Colonial to the Atlantic 10, but, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd feel more confident about this hire if, let's say, you know, Smart had gotten a job at maybe a Big East program uh, or perhaps uh, a Pac-12 program and had been able to enjoy a fair amount of success, then a stepping stone to Texas uh, w- would seem you know m- more appropriate for the moment. This seems like a little bit more of a reach. I mean, I think that you know he that Smart deserves to be one of the primary names on the coaching carousel for a high, for a high major job. I think that much uh, he certainly deserves at this moment. But you know, given the the, the centrality of Texas as a as a school with a tons of resources. And which has already been, you know, recruiting at a high level, um, handing the keys to Smart for that program, I, I'm I'm a little hesitant to say it's exactly what Texas needs right now. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assessment. And then uh, last but not least, the guy we mentioned, and you know, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but uh, Greg Marshall is is flirting with uh, uh, Alabama. This one to me just makes no sense and unless Marshall really is so prickly that he's kind of scared all the other bigger suitors away but I mean you look at what especially given what the the shockers have coming back next year uh I mean you know it's not it's not out of the question to think that that might be a top five or top ten team uh in 2000 uh 2016 uh, so I'm wondering, you know, if if maybe this is just uh, I, I, it seems more seems more serious than a leverage play, but just very uh, very kind of strange to me. I mean, Alabama. Uh. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, to follow in the footsteps of Wimp Sanderson just doesn't, you know, <laughs> roll off the tongue uh, the way wanting to be the head coach at Indiana mm-hmm. would be. And and this this really gets to the the, the point about Indiana. Uh, the silence from Bloomington right now is deafening. You know, I, I have heard nothing about what's going on with Tom Crean and and the the stability of that situation. You know, there was all this talk about, you know, the, the, the hefty amount of the buyout and, you know, how, how boosters were, you know, strongly considering uh, ponying up the money uh, to buy out Crean to be able to set up a mega coaching hire. So just exactly what has happened with that? Uh, you know, it's really faded in the background and the fact that the Final Four is in Indianapolis, you know, uh it would seem to draw more attention to that issue rather than less, but it's really flown under the radar the past few days. Mm-hmm. So, point. you know, I'm, I am wondering if, you know, while Marshall does this uh, somewhat public dance with Alabama, if behind the scenes, you know, his agent uh, is trying to, uh, you know, get the attention of folks at Indiana and maybe doing something uh, in, in back channels, uh, to see if uh, you know something can be solidified, because I mean that that strikes me as first of all a situation in which Indiana should move mountains yeah. uh, to to you know clear the way for Marshall to come, and secondly, as, assuming Indiana was to do that, well, if I'm Greg Marshall, if I'm going to leave a loaded Wichita State team, you know, as you mentioned for next season, I'm going to do it for Indiana. I'm not going to do it for Alabama. Yeah, I don't. I mean, to me, it's I, I. don't care how much money Alabama's offering. I mean, he's he's already, in fact, got a pretty nice, uh, nice paycheck that he's collecting there from Wichita State. Uh, so, I mean, to me, that's it, it. That part just doesn't make any sense to me. I I I guess maybe he's ready. If, if he's ready for a change, he's ready for a change. But I don't see it. Yeah, the other thing that the other thing that uh, strikes me about a move to Alabama and why it wouldn't make sense is that you know Greg Marshall. He's coached in the Missouri Valley, so he's used to coaching in a relatively thin, top-heavy league, mm-hmm. having you know one or two strong teams to go up against, and then a lot of flotsam and jetsam in the middle and lower tiers of the league. So if he goes to the SEC, well, he's just going to a high major version of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So you'd think that if he wanted to, you know, climb the ladder, it would be to a to a conference. Uh, that would offer a more robust challenge of his coaching chops. Uh, something you know, that that strikes me as something that a coach would want to scratch the itch for, uh, so to speak. You know, a, a conference that really would force him to to be at his very best every night. Uh, it would uh, require more of his abilities on a more consistent basis. And it'd just be more high profile. I mean, you know, Indiana hoops versus Alabama. It's not really. Uh, there's no. There's no comparison there. So if you're looking to get to the pinnacle of your profession, you know, one offers it and one doesn't really. But um, anyway, I guess moving one, on. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I just one could say that Marshall has a more high profile position now than than he would at Alabama. You know that he is he is so much the focal point in the place where he is. And in Alabama, well, if you're coaching basketball, you are not the focal point of what's going on in Tuscaloosa. Yeah, yeah there's no doubt about that, no doubt. So um, I guess moving on, though, let's let's talk about the actual games. Um, you know, uh, well, it, it, was a, it was a pretty strong weekend for the uh, Sweet 16 Elite Eight games, which is uh, – 
kind of really kind of in keeping with history you know uh you know the the first uh, rounds of the tournament are always what uh, gets everybody so excited with the upsets and the cinderellas and whatnot but i generally find that that that, that second weekend of the tournament is my favorite because you get more good matchups between you know elite teams and uh, i think that we really saw in a lot of cases these you know kind of paid off uh we got the payoff this weekend well, especially with the Elite Eight. I think the Elite yeah. Eight had had an all-time classic. It had a really, really high-level game. <clears throat> then it had another game that was mostly good and thoroughly dramatic. And then it had a game that was, you know, uh, close and tense for 35 minutes before a blown Kyle Wilcher layup uh, mm-hmm. just, you know, took the air out of the balloon for Gonzaga. So the classic was Notre Dame-Kentucky. The really, really high-level game was Arizona-Wisconsin. The mostly good and and, generally dramatic game was Michigan State-Louisville, and then you had Duke-Gonzaga. You know, Notre Dame-Kentucky, that's a game which really doesn't need much of a description. I mean, Mm -hmm. anyone who saw it was gripped by the theater, noticed how crisply Notre Dame played against an all-time great defense, that kind of speaks for itself. The game that I'm a little bit more focused on in terms of wanting to make sure it gets due praise and notice in, in the history books or, or, you know, at least on a blatant homerism podcast here. <laughs> this is uh, We've got to start yeah. somewhere, right? Yeah, uh, Is Arizona-Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the, if you had told Arizona coach Sean Miller or any Wildcat fan before that game, you're going to shoot 55% oh, from the field, actually a tick over 55%. Rounded up, you're going to shoot 56% from the field. You're going to go 28 of 30 at the foul line. You would have gotten an enthusiastic response. Yes. Yeah. We're going back to the final four in Tucson for the first time since 2001. We're going to carry the banner moving forward what Luke Olson originally built in the desert southwest. Yes. Arizona not only didn't win, Arizona was not particularly close. I mean, it was not a blowout, but the game was not a one-possession game in the final few minutes and in the final few seconds. And Wisconsin won that game with at least something of a working margin. Mm. And that that just blows my mind. Uh, that The notion that Arizona, a team you know prone to a lot of scoring droughts, a team that did not get consistent perimeter shooting, uh, during the regular season, could shoot just north of 55%, earn 30 trips to the line, make 28 of them, and not come particularly close to winning. I mean, that just shows you how well Wisconsin played and how well Wisconsin shot the ball. That was a staggering game to watch, one in which you know Arizona did tons of things right, you know, it was not. It was not about Arizona falling short. It was about Wisconsin setting an unreal standard with twelve of eighteen three-point makes. Uh, both Kaminsky and Decker, you know, scoring over twenty-six points. The thing about Decker that blows me away is that when he scored twenty-three points in the regional semifinals against North Carolina, that was a career high. That's pretty hard to believe for a player with his ability and his skill set. And then. Having established that career high, he topped it, and 
in that Arizona game. He wasn't even the highest scorer on his own team because Kaminsky went for 29 because he was able to get to the foul line so consistently. So, so many wow statistics and, and amazing realizations flowed from that Arizona-Wisconsin game. It was kind of the underrated gem of the weekend because it wasn't the nail-biter with historical implications that Notre Dame-Kentucky was, and it wasn't the overtime roller coaster ride that Michigan State Louisville was but in many ways you know it it, it stood out to me uh as someone who li- likes to see basketball played uh with elegance and precision that that game brought a lot to the table yeah I mean you know, I think you hit it right on the head as good as that Kentucky Notre Dame game was in terms of just one team giving a phenomenal performance. I mean, you got to give it up to the Badgers. And uh, I mean, I say this as, as a guy who was in Las Vegas during these games and had money on Arizona. Uh, that uh, I was, I was stunned at how well Wisconsin played. I mean, there, watching that, there was just nothing, nothing that uh, Arizona really could have done. Um, you know, it was such a phenomenal performance by Wisconsin, particularly Kaminsky and Decker. And, uh, you know, it, it makes for, uh, some, something, you know, kind of, uh, it, certainly an interesting matchup this weekend with, uh, Kentucky and we'll get to that later, but, you know, with, uh, Wisconsin having played so well in Kentucky, we're still kind of, eh, hemming and hawing along. Uh, I'll be interested to see, uh, which kind of, which versions of which we get from both teams, uh, coming up. Uh, coming up this weekend, but uh, let's let's move over to uh, the other side. You mentioned that uh, Michigan State Louisville game. Uh, what a in terms of drama. I mean, this had it. Uh, you know, so many different breaks and things went so many different ways. Um, it, it was kind of it felt like really you know you had two just elite coaches who were uh, really kind of trying to will their teams to to wins here. Because uh, the, these aren't vintage Louisville and Michigan State squads by any stretch. No, and the thing that jumps out to me about this game is that in overtime, uh, Michigan State had fouled out, uh, or, or excuse me, two two of Michigan State's front court players had fouled out, uh, Matt Costello mm-hmm. and Gavin Schilling. And so that meant that Brandon Dawson had to guard Montrez Harrell. And so, you know, the thought through for many people in the Carrier Dome and many people watching on TV was, well, okay, Louisville's going to just you know, dump the ball into the low post to Harrell, and he's going to be able to play over the top of Dawson. He's going to be able to shoot that half hook, maybe get in closer to the rim for a layup, maybe even a dunk, and Louisville's going to pull ahead. So what happens? Dawson was able to, you know, angle himself such that he was able to get his hands on the ball. He was able to rake. Oh, not Rake. He was able to pickpocket uh, Harold. Uh, Louisville wished that Dawson had raked him because mm-hmm. that would have sent Harold to the foul line. Uh, the you know Michigan State with its quick hands and also with double teams from Tum Tum Nairn uh, was able to frustrate Harold and uh, you know get multiple stops and win that game. So you know just when you thought that Louisville was going to have a particular advantage. Michigan State, you know, neutralized it. And that leads to another thing. You know, we, we were uh, thinking all week that, you know, free throws were going to get Michigan State in the backside. So what happens? The Spartans go 15 of 20. Mm-hmm. You know, they they were the better foul shooting team. You know, Matthew Yang, 
mentioned earlier, you know, he had two free throws with 4.9 seconds left. If he makes both, you know, we're probably sitting here with a Louisville victory, but he made only one. And of course, you know, the one that he did make, you know, bounced uh, four or five feet in the air before dropping through. So, you know, sports, man, sports. Mm -hmm. Michigan State was the stronger foul shooting team and it made a big difference. So Michigan State was able to turn what seemed like disadvantages into advantages. And, And that's why Tom Izzo's Tom Izzo, and that's why Michigan State's Michigan State. Yeah, and the difference here to me, I mean, you mentioned uh, Harrell. Uh, I I kind of thought that they, they should have tried to get Blackshear more uh, shots late in the game, too. I mean, I know he, he did hit a few, but it didn't seem like they were trying to get him, uh, you know, sets or uh, get him maybe kind of off screens or anything like that in uh, in that last minute or in the overtime uh, sequences. Um, and, you know... <sighs> Ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, this this Louisville team was so poor in the half court uh, offensively, and it, it just they they could not make anything happen when they needed to kind of manufacture some good looks there in the in uh, crunch time. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's amazing that on one hand that Louisville you know got to the Elite Eight after being such a horrible half court offensive team during the season, but it was also remarkable that Louisville played so efficiently throughout the North Carolina State regional semifinal on Friday, you know, mm-hmm. shot 50%, yeah. and, you know, knocked me over with a feather. That that was remarkable. I mean, Louisville played a near-perfect game on offense against North Carolina State, and then the Cardinals were also extremely efficient in the first half against Michigan State. Yeah, yeah. Scored 40 points, and uh, I think the statistic was Louisville won 94 straight, games when leading by more than six points at the half. So Louisville was up eight. I mean, you figure this team had played three almost perfect halves of offense in Syracuse. The the two halves against NC State, the first half against Michigan State. So you thought, okay, maybe shots aren't going to drop as consistently. And that's something that, by the way, did happen in the second half of that game. Harrell who, who you know, looked like a lottery pick in the first half of that game. In the second half, you know, he started missing some of those half hooks and other really good shot opportunities. But cast that aside for a moment. Even though some quality shots didn't fall for Louisville, the one thing a lot of people probably would have uh, assumed at halftime was that whether or not shots fell, you know, Louisville's guards had learned to make good decisions. You know, Quentin Snyder... Uh, you know, showed a lot of prudence against NC State and also in the first half against Michigan State of, you know, not relying too much on the three. He focused on getting into the lane, you know, shooting that eight-foot floater. Uh, and also against NC State, you know, Terry Rozier was similarly, you know, judicious with his shot selection. You know, he was not just chucking the ball at the first opportunity. He was working the ball, and he was also trying to attack the basket and get something better for his teammates. So, what was surprising about the second half of this game from a Louisville standpoint, in a negative way, is that Rozier just lost touch with what was a good shot. You know, mm-hmm. he had seemingly found the formula for that in the previous three halves in Syracuse, but in the second half, for whatever reason, it's just going to be the thing that makes Louisville fans, uh, you know, lament this game, you know, throughout a long off season is, you know, why did Rozier, you know, lose 
the good habits that he had developed earlier in, Sir, earlier in Syracuse. With about 20 seconds left, uh, you know, down one point, Rozier comes down the court and just at, at first blush, he shoots a contested fall-away 18-footer. You know, mm-hmm. just absolutely the worst shot you could have uh, drawn up under the circumstances. And, of course, you know, Michigan State missed two foul shots uh, to enable Louisville to come back down with another chance to win. And then the Cardinals split those two free throws and created overtime. But, you know, that shot with about 20 seconds left, you know, even though Rozier had displayed poor shot selection throughout the second half, you would then think that in the final half minute of regulation, well, okay, he's he's going to make the, the right decision this time. And you, you would ha- also have to think that Patino you know, said something to him, you know, about valuing the ball, but Rosier didn't. So it was just amazing to see Louisville, tra- you know, make the transformation into a smart, thoughtful offensive team for, you know, one and a half of the two games it played over the weekend. And then in that second half and overtime, you know, to lose touch with what got the Cardinals, you know, to the precipice of another final four. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, their shot selection as a, as a team really felt like kind of fell apart. Um, last uh, last game and and you know maybe one of the more um, intriguing performances to me was just I I really thought that uh, this would be this was Gonzaga's year. Uh, I was very impressed with how they played uh, against UCLA, who granted isn't a great team, but uh, I mean Gonzaga was was awfully sharp. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a team that was veteran laden, yeah, you know, a coach that had, had that, you know, had kind of been just dying to kind of crack through that, uh, glass ceiling. But, uh, Duke gave, in my opinion, quite a performance, at least from their starting five. Uh, Justice Winslow maybe played his best game, uh, you know, I guess at least in a while. Um, all in all, I was, I was, uh, really impressed by how the, uh, Blue Devils pulled this one off. And, uh, right now I, I kind of see him advancing to, uh, take on Kentucky in the final for what might be, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, historic matchup that, uh, CBS is drooling over. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dissent, Alan. I, I, I was... I was not particularly impressed by Duke's performance. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was more about Gonzaga failing to, to make shots. Mm-hmm. Um, student section colleague Scott King, who is on Twitter at Bearcats blog, he, he and I talked about this late Friday night after all the six, Sweet 16 games were over, that you know Duke had just the right draw through the Sweet 16. You know, Duke played San Diego State, which is a rock fight team uh, in the round of 32. And then, you know, Utah just had a, a devil of a time, pun not intended. Mm. I kind of stumbled into that yeah. one. Utah had a terrible time putting the ball in the basket uh, in that Sweet 16 game. And, you know, for that matter, Gonzaga, though looking crisp in terms of, you know, movement and rota- defensive rotations and whatnot against UCLA, Gonzaga still made only three three-point shots in that game. And, you know, not coincidentally, the, the most uneven and unenjoyable basketball of this past weekend was the South Regional, which, you know, was played in a football stadium. You know, with, with the Carrier Dome, you could say that that's a basketball arena. You know, it's a dome, but it's it's a dome made for basketball with an intimate 
setting and configuration. I mean, it does feel like basketball when you're playing in Syracuse. So this was the one uh, regional seating alignment which, you know, was really belonging to a football stadium. It was by far the most cavernous, uh, you know, unnatural environment for basketball. And none of the teams who played in that South Regional really ever got the hang of it in terms of uh, how to deal with the shooting background. So to, to focus on this uh, Duke-Gonzaga game from Sunday, Duke shot under 38%. You know, Duke was not consistent in terms of putting the ball in the bucket. You know, Matt Jones had a particularly good stretch, and he finished 6 for 10. You know, he was fairly consistent. Winslow kind of came on a little bit later in the game uh, after a slow start. You know, he was excellent on Friday. He had eight field goal makes. He was the only Blue Devil to you know, take at least 10 shots and shoot over 50%. You know, most of his teammates against Utah were struggling. Uh, Jalil Okafor scored under 10 points in both of these games against Utah and Gonzaga. So Duke was leaving a lot of points on the table this weekend, uh, including against Gonzaga with with a shooting percentage in the 30s. So the Blue Devils, I felt, were there for the taking. And, you know, the difference to me not just the Wiltshire missed layup, you know, near the five minute mark, uh, which really deflated, uh, the Zags, but also, you know, Gonzaga made just, I believe it only two, three pointers yeah, two in that game. You know, Gonzaga, Gonzaga had to, you know, be able to shoot the three after struggling in that regard, uh, Friday night against UCLA. And one thing that I had, had wondered about with Scott King, uh, in our discussion was, you know, those Friday games were night games. And in a day game, the lighting of a dome is often different. And so, you know, would that, would there be a consistency of familiarity uh, with the shooting background or would the fact that it was a day game as opposed to a night game still make shooters unsure of, of their depth perception and the other things that go into the, the shooting environment at, at NRG Stadium in Houston. And, and I think it's clear that the latter won out over the former. And, you know, Gonzaga had to be able to transcend that issue uh, in order to go to its first Final Four. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that to beat Duke in an NCAA tournament, you have to you have to score big. Uh, you, you can't win grinders against Duke. If you, you know, if your offense is scuffling along, you're, you're probably not going to win. You know, Mercer, Lehigh, 2009 Villanova, 2011 Arizona, you know, they scored big and ushered Duke out of the tournament. So with with Kevin Pangos being conspicuously silent mm-hmm. and with Wiltshire, you know, who had a decent game, he needed to go off, especially with Pangos not being really productive. Wiltshire had to go off and have a have a, you know, a very fat stat line. And uh, failing to score 20 points, you know, doesn't qualify as such. And that's why Gonzaga is staying home. Yeah, yeah. You know, to me, the uh, interesting thing, and again, folks, talking with Matt Zemek of uh, the student section. uh, Again, the interesting thing to me there, though, was defensively, actually. uh, You know, that's an area where Duke hasn't been particularly good uh, the whole year through. Uh, You know, they were able to get 13 turnovers uh, to just three uh, with you know that salty backcourt that uh, Duke has, uh, that's the other thing that really caught my eye about this game is how much better it feels like Duke is is starting to play uh, in the half court defensively. 
You know, I, I think I think Duke's effort was excellent. So in that sense, I'm definitely going to agree with you. I'm also going to say though that you know uh, Karnowski, in a game that was played, you know the the, the score was 66-52, but the pace of that game in the first 12 minutes or so was was extremely vigorous, and Karnowski really did not have a place on the floor yeah. in a game played at, with a with a breakneck. Uh, pace, and so he was tired. He got into foul trouble. Uh, I actually think that Gonzaga did a lot better when Sabonis yeah. was on the floor instead of Karnowski. Uh, but the point remains that you know, with with Karnowski not able to really keep up with the flow of that game, and uh, you know, Gonzaga missed an opportunity, you know, to to get some work done against Okafor, who, again, you know, he struggled throughout the weekend, both games against Utah and Gonzaga. So in that sense, you know, the, the Blue Devils, for all of the work that they put in at the defensive end of the floor, and I think their guards with their quickness, uh, you know, they definitely blanketed Pangos. I think their perimeter defense was outstanding. Uh, but on the interior, you know, Okafor, being a defensive liability, you know, the, I think the Zags missed an opportunity uh, to really go to town. And I would also reiterate that, you know, Wiltshire posting up, uh, who is generally a smaller defender, you know, he he needed to score more than he did and he wasn't able to. So I think that, I think the Duke's perimeter defense, that I'm really sold on. And I think that's going to really be a benefit for the Blue Devils when they go against Travis Trice. Uh, mm-hmm. This Saturday, I think they can lock him down. But in the paint, that that's still a, a, a concern for Duke at the defensive end of the floor. All right, so let's go ahead then and move on to those uh, those games this weekend. Uh, you know, I think the uh, Blue Devils are a, a small favorite here, something around the around five point uh, favorite over Michigan State. Uh, I mean, do you, do you have any strong feelings on this way, one way or the other? You know, I don't have a strong feeling on it. I, I would say that Duke should win, but you know, I can I can very I don't see the notion of Michigan State winning as a remote notion. I think it's a, there's a better chance than remote that that Michigan State wins. But the key player in this game to me is Denzel Valentine. You know, he is a, a player. You know, kind of a tweener between guard and, and forward. You know, he he has a taller body than I think the the, the defender that he's going to face uh, for Duke, but he plays a perimeter-based game. So he's a guy who, you know, will be able to operate, I think, at different spots on the floor, and he can do different things to distort the shape of Duke's defense. So if he is on, he's going to create a chain reaction in Duke's defense that might be able to free up Trice. But if he's not able to uh, get going, you know, it's going to be hard for me to see Trice being able to create his own shot against the quickness of Duke's guards, as, as mentioned a moment ago. So I think Valentine becomes the central figure, and I think if there's another figure uh, in this game who really needs to rise up and be at his very best, it's Brandon Dawson, who you know was silent for the first 35 minutes of the Louisville game, but then late in regulation, and then in overtime with his paint defense against. Harrell and Louisville's other bigs, you know, he really, he really stepped up and owned that overtime period. So, you know, if he can make some high impact plays and perhaps if Trice uh, is blanketed and he has to give up the ball, you know, if he can feed Dawson either on a cut 
or on a post up, a, a post feed, uh, you know, that might be able to give Michigan State some the different offensive dimension that's going to need uh, against Duke's perimeter defense. So Valentine and Dawson, to me, are the are the players who you know have the ability uh, to win this game for Michigan State. That and that's assuming that you know Trice is contained in the first half. If if Valentine and, and uh, Dawson can do well in the first half, you know, then I think Michigan State becomes a well-rounded offensive team in the second half and can attack Duke from different angles. But if Valentine and Dawson uh, don't get off to big starts, you know, then Duke's going to have matchup advantages through all across the court, and it's going to be hard to see the Spartans winning. Yeah, and you know the the one guy for Duke that I love isn't isn't Okafor actually, and I, as much as I like Justice Winslow, uh, to me it's Tyus Jones. He is the one that really uh, kind of uh, he's the straw that stirs uh, Coach K's drink, I'd say. Uh, with his dribble penetration, I mean yeah. he 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 was getting to the rim the, this past weekend in Houston. He just wasn't finishing, and you know I think that against uh, Trice or whoever. Uh, Gets the assignment, you know. They Izzo could put uh, Tum Tum Nairn mm-hmm. on him. You know, I think Trice, uh, excuse me, I think Tyus Jones can can win that matchup. Uh, not only can I should say, but probably will, uh, and that's going to give Duke uh, a leg up because because mm-hmm. again, Jones was getting to the to the rim. It, that's not really his problem. The problem is finishing, and you know when when you're a player talented enough to consistently get to the basket you're not going to keep missing uh, mm-hmm. all the time. You know, those shots are eventually going to go down or perhaps the defense is going to be so preoccupied with your penetration that you'll be able to make uh, feeds to Okafor or Winslow for dunks. All right. Well, let's look uh, over at the other side of the draw. And again, folks, I'm talking with Matt Zemek of the student section. Uh, the real heavyweight fight, Wisconsin and Kentucky, um, you know, I called it a heavyweight fight, and I'd say that uh, the Badgers probably have better than a puncher's chance here. Um, after the way that Notre Dame played against Kentucky, I mean, it, it, was that just a matter of Notre Dame playing so well that uh, they, uh, you know, kind of played above their heads and were able to give Kentucky a great game, or was it more that there was some kind of flaw in Kentucky that they exposed? Well, John Calipari said after that game that he never really could figure out what it was Notre Dame was doing. And I mean, you know, on a general level, we know what Notre Dame was doing. And that was, you know, sharing the ball and not just sharing the ball. That That's a little simplistic. Notre Dame was moving the ball mm-hmm. consistently. So the fact that the ball was always moving, it prevented Kentucky from being able to settle into certain positions and know what to expect. One of the very particular features of Notre Dame's attack uh, is that it was able to draw, you know, two Kentucky bigs on a drive to the basket. It was able to spread the floor, get a driving lane, and then when, when that driving lane opened, oftentimes, you know, not just one Kentucky big, but two would go to try to stop the drive. And so Notre Dame would put up a layup, you know, high off the backboard, and that layup wouldn't always go in the basket, but just the fact that two Kentucky bigs had to chase meant that another Notre Dame player was there on the weak side for a put-back dunk or layup. So Notre Dame's displacement of Kentucky's bigs, spreading them, getting out of position, 
and making them unsure of what to expect. That really was the was the key to what the Irish did. It's what it's not so much about finishing plays because just putting that ball on the glass invited a putback opportunity. It was the drawing of two men uh, w- which made a lot of Notre Dame's baskets possible. So when you switch to Wisconsin, in a certain sense, the Badgers are less equipped than Notre Dame to, mm-hmm. I think, pull that off. Because Wisconsin doesn't have quite as much quickness as Notre Dame. I think the, the instinct to move the ball, that exists. But being able to... Uh, drive the ball quickly to the basket and generate enough speed uh, that Kentucky's a, a half step behind, that might be hard. I mean, you know, Sam Decker uh, is, you know, he, he was excellent at getting to the 10 against Arizona. And, you know, he's muscular. He's powerful. You know, it's, it's hard to fully get in his way when he, when he gets a full head of steam going to the basket. But can he beat Kentucky's bigs with his foot speed? I'm not sure about that. And, and so it's going to be fascinating to see uh, how Calipari uh, uses his rotation of bigs against Decker and Kaminsky, you know, both agile, bigger guys who can put it on the deck uh, and go to the basket as well as shooting the three. So, so ha- I, I mean, I imagine that uh, Willie Cauley-Stein is going to draw Kaminsky so, you know, that makes uh, who guards Decker, you know, a particularly fascinating question. And so, you know, seeing how <clears throat> those two pairs of players, Colley Stein and uh, Kentucky's other big against uh, Kaminsky and Decker, that combination of matchups, those four players against each other, uh, seems to be the centerpiece of Saturday's game. Yeah, and uh, one thing that uh, might go a little under the radar here going into this game that I'll be interested to see is how well Wisconsin handles uh, how well Kentucky's bigs run the floor. Uh, you know, I mean, they get up and down pretty well, uh, which you know kind of behooves the Wildcats in the uh, in the uh, on in transition because they're able to get putback dunks or you know get down the floor for uh, alley oops. You know, it, it, that can be pretty taxing on big guys like Kaminsky. Who uh, you know? I mean, Wisconsin plays. Or you know, they're not an unathletic team by any stretch, but they play a pretty slow style. Uh, you know, I, I I guess I'm wondering if uh, there's some potential there to maybe uh, give give Kaminsky more trouble than he's uh, ready for. I think there's no question about it, Alan. That uh, John Calipari would would love a, a, a racehorse game. I think that would definitely play. Uh, in Kentucky's favor. Now, you know, some might say, with a certain amount of legitimacy, I might add, that, you know, hey, Wisconsin can play above the rim. Decker can finish on the break. You know, the, the Badgers have the horses to be able to score on a level with Kentucky if this game acquires a faster pace. That's true. The problem would be, you know, sustaining that kind of pace mm-hmm. For 40 minutes if Kentucky is willing to play it. So if I'm Calipari, I'm sitting here saying, you know, if, if Wisconsin, if you want to play a fast-paced game for 40 minutes, I will trust my 10-deep rotation and my platoons uh, and our ability to wear you down. I don't trust that you'll be able to keep up for the full 40. So it's in that sense uh, that, you know, Kentucky should welcome uh, a faster-paced game. You know, if in terms of running the break selectively, 
and perhaps finding a you know a five or six minute pocket of play uh, that you know generates a lot of fast break points. If Wisconsin wants to do that, the Badgers should be comfortable with that. It's just a matter of sustaining that pace. You know, Wisconsin will at some point in this game need to slow things down. It doesn't mean that has to be Wisconsin's approach the whole way. Uh, but, you know, Wisconsin will need, I think, to pick its spots a little bit more, whereas if you're Kentucky, you know, again, you, you probably wouldn't mind all 40 minutes, you know, being a faster pace. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, that kind of brings us to the end here, Matt. Any any uh, parting parting thoughts, anything uh, that, uh, you know, sticks out about uh, how you think things are going to play out this weekend? Well, just one more note about uh, Wisconsin and Kentucky, and that is Trayvon Jackson. You know, he mm-hmm. was at the centerpiece of, of the end game last year. You know, his shot selection was, was questioned uh, when Wisconsin, you know, fell one point short. And so, you know, he will, he perhaps more than any other player on the floor for Wisconsin, you know, wants this uh, bit of revenge. But when you look at what Bronson Koenig has, has given to the Badgers on offense, I, 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 don't, I think it would be almost unanimous, if not unanimous, that Koenig is a better offensive player. And so the other really fascinating subtext to this game is, you know, how central a role does Trayvon Jackson have in this game? And that question is related to the point that uh, Bo Ryan might use him in a lot of defense for offense substitutions. You know, if he feels he's in a pocket of, of the game where, you know, he needs to lock down Kentucky and he sees Kentucky's offense gaining steam, you know, you might see Ryan put Jackson on the floor a little bit more instead of Koenig. And then if uh, Wisconsin needs offense in a given sequence of play, you know, you should see Koenig uh, getting more minutes uh, than Jackson. But how Bo Ryan distributes Jackson's and Koenig's minutes, um, that's something uh, that really should be watched for. Ultimately, if it's prediction time, you know, I had Wisconsin winning before this tournament uh, Mm -hmm. began. But... Having seen Wisconsin shoot 12 of 18 from three and just, you know, knock the lights out against uh, Arizona, a legitimately great defensive team, I have a hard time believing that Wisconsin's going to be able to do this thing two Saturdays in a row. I think that's tall odds, and I think that Kentucky, having survived a scare, is now going to be more confident than ever. So I really do think that, that this lines up well uh, for Kentucky, you know, even though, you know, I've long believed that Wisconsin is the, is the perfect team uh, to be able to beat Kentucky with, you know, a, a, a spaced out floor, spreading the floor uh, for a bunch of very capable three point shooters. So I would have to give the the advantages to Duke and Kentucky in these games. Yeah, that's that's the way I'm leaning too. And then I, I'd see Kentucky uh, taking home everything on Wednesday, on uh, Monday night. But uh, still, a couple games, and I have a feeling we'll get at least. I'm hoping we'll at least get one classic, maybe uh, in the next couple days. So definitely some good oh. matchups. And the thing to remember about this Final Four relative to last year, you know, last year we had a seven seed playing a one seed in the first game, and it was not the number one seed who won comfortably. So, you know, that's that's something to keep in mind in terms of Michigan State and Duke and, and in terms of our expectations for these semifinals. You know, last year Kentucky was the eight, Wisconsin was the two, but, you know, so who played in the final? It was the eight and the seven seed while the one and the two seed went home. So, you know, just when you think that 
the final four means, you know, less, fewer upsets and more chalk. Well, college basketball throws a curveball. So we will see what happens this Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Matt, real quick, uh, Please uh, plug uh, where everybody can find you and uh, what kind of stuff you've been working on recently. Okay, well, we're at the student section. That that our uh, parent company, Bloguin, B-L-O-G-U-I-N.com. Uh, we have a, a number of football roundtables published today by co-editors uh, Terry Johnson and Bart Doan, and they've joined uh, TSS contributor Kevin Causey, uh, rolling out the latest in their series of Wednesday roundtables, today's editions, uh, the best college football team of all time and the most underrated college football team of all time. So we have a dedicated football-only page you can go to that runs across the top of our uh, homepage at the student section. And then we have our Final Four coverage uh, augmented by also coaching analysis uh, of the Tennessee, DePaul, and St. John's hires by staff writer Joseph Nardone, uh, and he's also offered an analysis of the Kentucky-Wisconsin game. Coming up in the next few days, some NCAA tournament Final Four history in terms of seedings and championship matchups, and also uh, retrospectives on two Final Fours that I think uh, offer strong parallels with this Final Four. The 1991 Final Four, also in Indianapolis, and also the 1999 uh, Final Four in St. Petersburg, which also involved a Duke-Michigan State Izzo Krzyzewski semifinal, the only other time those two coaches have met in the Final Four. So we have lots of good stuff coming your way the next few days at the student section. Again, folks, that's Matt Zemek. Uh, very, uh, very, very happy that I could have him on to talk about the Final Four. Matt, thank you so much for coming on, man. Really do appreciate it. It has been a blast to do all these basketball podcasts over the past month. And, Alan, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Oh, sure. No, well, my the pleasure's all mine, Matt. Thanks so much for helping me out. And thank you all for joining us, too, for the Waiting Homers and Podcast. I'm Alan Kenny. Take it easy.